If you have your Bible with you this morning, let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15, we're going to read verses 10 through 26. And we're going to take a look at Saul as you think about our study this year on drawing near to God. Uh, you may think about it like climbing a mountain. And uh, when I lived in Colorado, one of the things we liked to do was hike the mountains. The mountains are a little different out there than they are here. Uh, ours look more like hills in comparison to those Rocky Mountains, very steep, high elevation, arid terrain oftentimes. And so it was a chore to climb up the mountain. I found that there were internal challenges when I first moved out there. The elevation would get you. The, the oxygen is thinner, and you'd start climbing up one of those things, and all of a sudden you felt like your lungs were collapsing. You couldn't breathe. You'd have to stop and take a break. There were also external challenges. Sometimes there was loose rock or footing or roots or things that would cause you to trip and that sort of thing. And then there was the constant pull of gravity that was on you, that if you did fall, you were going to roll a little ways down. Well, if you think about drawing near to God, you have to understand that it is no gentle cruise that you just drift towards God. It is kind of like climbing a rocky mountain. And there are some internal conflicts that are going to hold you back at times. And there are some external threats that can cause you to fall. And there is this constant tension or pull like gravity that is trying to pull you away from the summit or away from God. And so what we're doing right now is looking at some people in the Bible who were near to God and were drawn away. And so, if you would, follow along as I read 1 Samuel chapter 15, beginning in verse 10. Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he is turned back from following me, and hath not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night, and when Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel. And behold, he set him up a place and has gone about and passed on and gone down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, Well, what means then this bleating of the sheep in mine ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, they, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God, and the rest have we utterly destroyed. And then Samuel said unto Saul, Stay, and I will tell thee what the Lord has said to me this night. And he said unto him, Say on. And Samuel said, When thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed thee king over Israel. And the Lord sent thee on a journey and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they be consumed. Wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but didst fly upon the spoil, didst evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said unto Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and have gone the way which the Lord sent me, and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the spoil, sheep, oxen, the chief things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. 
For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. And Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in thy words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore I pray thee, pardon my sin, turn again with me, that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee, for thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord hath rejected thee from being king over Israel. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, once again, it is our honor and our privilege to be able to hold a copy of your word in our hands, to be able to read it freely, to, Lord, have the aptitude to be able to study it, to understand it, and to make application of it. Father, I pray and ask that your Holy Spirit would fill me and anoint me afresh and anew so that I might preach your word with power and clarity I pray, Lord, that you would lead and guide my thoughts and my words and that I would say only those things that you would have me to say. And may I clearly and rightly represent you when it is all said and done. For it is to you that we seek to give glory and honor. It is to you that we seek to give our worship and our dedication to today. May we learn the lesson from Saul and may we avoid the pitfalls that took him down, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. King Saul provides for us another profile of a person who was once near to God, but has been drawn away. If you remember, so far we have studied Jonah, Lot, and Samson. Each one shares the common connection of being drawn away and allowing distance to come between them and God. However, each one highlights a different aspect of being drawn away. So all of these guys have been drawn away, but they've not all been drawn away in the exact same way. So there is a common connectivity in that they are teaching us about being drawn away, but they each highlight a different aspect of the danger or uh, the elements that drew them away. If you remember Jonah, for Jonah it was a conflict of wills between him and God. Jonah pursued his own will instead of pursuing the will of God. God's will was for him to go to Nineveh and Jonah's will was for him to go to Tarshish. And so there was this internal conflict that Jonah had that drew him away. And sometimes that's what you and I face. We have this internal conflict. God made us volitional creatures. He gave us a free will. He gave us the ability to make choices and then he also gave us commands and sometimes his commands or his will his instruction goes against what we want to do and we find ourselves in that place of internal conflict and it can draw us away if we choose to follow our own will instead of God's will lot on the other hand was drawn away by the enticement of the world and its temptations. We don't read about the internal conflict of Lot. What we read about is the external enticement that drew Lot out. It was something about Sodom and Gomorrah that attracted him, that he wanted to go towards, that he wanted to be near, that drew him away from the family of God. Lot was deceived into believing that life would be more enjoyable if it was lived farther from God rather than living closer to God. Oh, and my, how many people experience that exact same downfall that they imagine 
that life close to God is not enjoyable. It is restrictive. It is parochial. It is binding. It is constraining. And they look at the world out there and say, look at how much fun they are having. They're really free. They get to do whatever they want to do. And I'm over here living by all of these rules. And it is that temptation, that enticement, that life would be more enjoyable living at a distance from God that draws some people away. Samson, although the strongest man in the Bible, had a glaring weakness that led to his downfall. It wasn't just an internal conflict. It wasn't just an enticement of the world. It was that Samson had a weak area in his life. And we all have a weak area. We are all people of the flesh. Hebrews says, lay aside every weight and sin which does so easily beset us. And it has been said that every Christian has some besetting sin. Your area of weakness may be different than your brother's area of weakness. Uh, Because Samson was strong in other areas, he lived in denial about his weakness which allowed the enemy an opportunity to draw him away. And so because Samson was strong, he had taken that Nazarite vow. He was living according to the Nazarite vow. He hadn't cut his hair. He wasn't partaking of the fruit of the vine. There were things that he was not doing. He was strong in those areas. It's as if he totally was in denial that he had this area of weakness. And because he didn't live with an awareness of it, because he didn't guard it, then the enemy was able to take that and take advantage of it. King Saul is different than all of these. Saul actually demonstrates the danger that comes, watch this, with the blessings and the promotions of God. That's where the danger came for Saul. That's where Saul got drawn away. It wasn't the worldly temptations. It wasn't just an internal conflict. It wasn't just a glaring weakness. It was that God had blessed this man and God had promoted this man. And because of those blessings and those positions, now he has a struggle. Think about it. Everything in this text that we just read happened as a result of God's blessing and and promotion of Saul to the position of king. None of this happened before before Saul was king. It only came after he is coronated as king. It only comes after he settles into this blessed position of being the monarch of Israel. It only comes after he has gotten used to this lifestyle of being the chief administrator in Israel. And what you and I need to realize is that blessings and promotions from God are good. We all want them, don't we? That's what we pray for. We pray for the blessings, not the burdens. We ask God to take the burdens away and send the blessings in their place. Blessings are good. Promotions are good, but we need to be aware of the danger that accompanies them. That when God does bless you, when God does promote you, you are now in a position that has with it some inherent dangers. We can easily lose focus on God when he blesses us and promotes us. One of the dangers of the blessings of God is that we focus on the blessings and not the God who blessed. 
and we begin to obsess about the blessings and, and, and focus on the blessings and we forget that it was God who blessed us and we take our focus off of him. Too often we forget that it was only by God that we got what we got and where we got. Why is Saul in this position, I would ask you? And the only answer is because God put him there. It's the only answer. They weren't run, he wasn't running for king when he got elected, right? God is the one who sent Samuel to anoint him as king. God has promoted him. God has blessed him. God has positioned him there. Everything that he has is because God gave it to him, and that has put him in a very dangerous place. You see, when that happens, like Saul, we tend to think that we are more important and more powerful and more deserving than we actually are. Isn't that a strange anomaly? When the blessings first coming, we're so humble. Oh, Lord, I don't deserve this. Thank you for blessing me. But if the blessings keep coming, all of a sudden we start thinking, you know what? I'm something. I mean, I know God loves all of his children, but I must be his favorite because he just keeps blessing me. And then we start thinking, well, I'm bigger than everybody. I'm more powerful. I'm more deserving. I deserve this. Look what a dedicated Christian. I am praise the Lord and I witness for him and I live the life for him. I, I deserve this. And, and we get this strange mentality where we begin to think that way. The influx of blessings into our life can inflate our ego, which in turn can eclipse God from whom the blessings came. You see, as those blessings come in, sometimes we start focusing on ourselves. Oh, look at me. Look at who I am. And all of a sudden, our ego has gotten so big that it's blocked out the light of God that's shining in our life. Sadly, the higher one rises, the further they can get away from God. It is arguable, and I think provable, that when Saul got to his highest point in life, he was at his lowest point away from God. And the same can happen to you and I when the blessings come. This is the story of King Saul. In, in this message, we will identify four critical errors made by Saul that drew him away from God. They're right there in the text. God has highlighted them for us. He, he has recorded this for our eternal good. And he wants you and I to know that he wants to bless us and he wants to promote us, but he doesn't want us to fall into the same snare that Saul fell into. And so we can identify these four critical errors. They are not unique to Saul. They are common to all of us. However, the good news is that Saul's story does not have to be your story. The fact is, you can enjoy the blessings and the promotions of God without being drawn away. You don't have to turn into a King Saul. You can be blessed by God. You can be promoted to the highest level of God as long as you learn to live with an awareness of the danger zones. And for some of you, Kenny Loggins just went through your mind, right? <laughs> I won't sing. I'll refrain. In verse 11, God clearly states that Saul has drawn away from him. Notice it. He said, it repenteth me. God says, I've changed my mind about you, Saul. It repents me that I, I have set Saul to be king, for he is turned back from following me. That is God's diagnosis 
of Saul. He has turned back from following me. So he, we've got, we're on the foundation, right? We understand Saul has drawn away from God. In verse 12, God's liaison, Samuel, goes to find Saul and to confront King Saul about his disobedience. Samuel is God's man, God's liaison, God's prophet, God's messenger. And so God is giving the message to Samuel and he's saying, Samuel, I want you to go find Saul and I want you to deliver this message. And then in verses 13 through 26, we have this interaction between Samuel and between Saul and it exposes his critical errors. Now, we don't have time in today's message to give the entire backstory as to why God commanded Saul to go wipe out the Amalekites and to uh, wipe out all their, all their goods and not to take anything. Just know this, in the beginning of the chapter, that was the command that came to Saul. Don't spare anything. God didn't say, save the best for my sacrifices. God said, destroy it all. And Saul did not do that. And so, as we highlight these critical errors, number one, the rise of personal pride. We find this in verses 13 through 17. And what we find is that King Saul blatantly disobeyed God's command to destroy all by sparing the king and the animals. Now, granted, he didn't spare everybody. He didn't even spare a majority. He didn't spare a minority. It says he spared King Agag, but that he also spared sheep and oxen and other animals of that sort. It is, while it may seem minor, it is a blatant disobedience to God's express command. When Samuel confronts Saul about it, Saul claims that he has fully obeyed. Did you see? When Samuel walks up, Saul's all proud like. He's like, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. To which Samuel sarcastically replies, then why do I hear livestock bellowing in the background? If you've obeyed, Saul, why are the sheep bleating in the background? Why are the oxen lowing? Hey, right there's the proof of your disobedience and you're oblivious to it. How could Saul be oblivious? How could he make the claim that he had obeyed God when it is obvious that he did not? Well, after Saul makes an excuse about saving the animals to offer as a sacrifice to God, Samuel identifies Saul's first critical error in verse 17. Samuel said, When thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel? In other words... Samuel says, Saul, your problem is, is that when you were small in your own sight, that's when God promoted you. When you were humble, when you didn't think much of yourself, that's when God was able to bless you. And that time word, when, is telling us something has changed from that time. He is no longer small in his own sight. Now he has pride that has risen up in him. His ego is inflated. Now he thinks pretty highly of himself. Do you remember what Saul was like when we first met him? Look back a couple of pages to uh, chapter 9, verse 20. In the middle of verse 20, it says this, And on whom is all the desire of Israel? Samuel is speaking to Saul at this point. Is it not on thee and on thy father's house? And in chapter 9, verse 21, Saul answers and said, Am, I, am not I a Benjamite 
of the smallest of the tribes of Israel, and my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Wherefore then speakest thou to me? Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful humility? I mean, Saul is completely caught off guard when Samuel comes to him and says, hey, you're going to be the next king. You're the man that's going to be the next king. And Saul says, "Who? What are, you, what are you talking about? Who am I? I mean, I come from the smallest tribe in the nation. I come from the lowest family in that tribe. Who am I that God would choose me to be king? That's how Saul started out. In fact, in the next chapter, in chapter 10, when Samuel comes to announce that Saul is king and to anoint him, they can't find him. Do you remember that? Chapter 10, verses 20 and 21. Where is Saul? And God tells Samuel he's hiding in the hay or hiding in the stuff. Why? Because this guy doesn't think that he's qualified to become the king of Israel. As a matter of fact, even after he is anointed, he tries to go back home and go back to keeping the sheep and doing those things. But God has a different plan for his life. And what we are seeing in this first critical era is that Saul used to be humble. Saul used to have a small view of himself. But when God promoted him, Saul's promotion turned into pride. And may I remind you of this, pride is the age-old problem that draws us away from God. How old is the problem of pride? Well, I would say that it is the original sin because it is what drew Satan away from God. Again, we don't have time to go explore every text, but if you want to jot down Ezekiel chapter 28... You want to read verses 1 through 17. Later, the indictment comes against Satan. And the Bible says that he had set his heart to be God. That he had wanted to sit in the seat of God. That he wanted to be God. And that his heart was lifted up with pride. And that is why he got cast out of heaven. Because he tried to overthrow God. What is that? That is pride. What we learn about Satan is that before his fall, that he was one of the highest angels in God's army, that he had the privileged position of being the, uh, the covering cherub who reflected the glory of God to the heavens, and that the eyes of the other angels were on him because he is the instrument through which God's glory is diffused. And because of that, he begins to think, they're all looking at me. I am the one, and I should be sitting in the seat of God. And it was his pride that caused his downfall. And it is also what he tempted the first man and woman with. It was pride. You say, I thought it was a piece of fruit. It was, but it was that the fruit would make you like God. God doesn't want you to eat that because then he knows that in the day you eat that, you will be like him. Isn't that the enticement? Isn't that the promise? And the pride begins to rise up in the heart of Eve. And she begins to think about how good it would be to be God. And it is pride that draws him away. In case you think that I'm missing the mark here, I would just point you to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 when uh, Paul is giving the qualifications for a pastor or an elder to, to Timothy. And he says, hey, hey, 
don't install a novice, a newbie. Why? Well, this is what he says. Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Hey, it's a real danger. And it's a risk to you and I. You may think that you're some humble person. You may have this persona of humbleness and humility. But I am telling you there is pride that lies in the heart of every man and woman. And that it will rise up oftentimes when God blesses us. It's a danger zone for us all. Beware of pride. Number two. The reluctance of personal responsibility. His first critical error was the rise of pride. His second is identified as the reluctance of personal responsibility in verses 18 through 21. After being confronted by Samuel, Saul changes his tune and tries to shift the blame to others. Did you notice that? First, he saw Samuel comes up. Oh, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. Well, why do I hear the sheep? Oh, well, we kept this so that we could offer the best sacrifices to God. And Samuel says, whoa, that's not what God said. That's not what God told you to do. And so after Samuel confronts Saul about that, Saul changes his tune. His first response was, we saved the best animals to sacrifice to God. And when that doesn't fly with Samuel, his second response is, well, I obeyed God. But those people, they're the ones who kept the animals to sacrifice. It wasn't me. It was them. Again, don't we find that same danger going all the way back to the beginning of mankind's sin that when God called Adam into accountability he says well the woman that you gave me and when God confronts the woman well the serpent is the one who tempted me it is this reluctance of personal responsibility Saul refuses to take personal responsibility for his own action which took him further away from God And again, this is pandemic to the human population is that we all have this tendency to want to shift the blame to somebody else. We are often reticent to accept blame. Well, I did my part, but if it wasn't for so-and-so or if they hadn't done this, in reality what we're doing is we're trying to shift the blame somewhere else. Reluctance to take personal responsibility never brings you closer to God. Mark that down. Imprint it on your memory. Reluctance to take personal responsibility never brings you closer to God. It will always take you further away. So you'll never grow in your spiritual life making excuses to God. Well, God, if it wasn't, well, I tell you, you know, I'd go to church if there was a good one around here to go to. I've been to all of them, and they filled up with hypocrites, and the preachers don't know anything. I'm better off staying home, reading my Bible. Hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. Do we take responsibility for anything? Or are we always looking to shift the blame to somebody else? Let me remind you of this. God's prescribed pathway for drawing nearer to him after we have sinned is confession, not denial. You've sinned, you've messed up, you've blown it, you've gotten off the tracks, you want to get back near to God, don't deny what you did. 
don't refuse to take responsibility for what you did. If you want to draw back near to God, God says, come through the confessional. Listen to 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Do you know what confession is? It's not going into a little box in a church building. That's not in the Bible anywhere. Confession is admitting and owning our own sins and failures to God. That's the only person you have to confess to. And so if we want to draw near to God, we don't do it by denying or having reluctance to personal responsibility. We do it by confessing it, by admitting it, by owning it. God, I blew it. You're right. I sinned. I, 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 I have a weakness. I, I, I gave in to temptation. Whatever it may be, I lost my temper. We don't have to confess them to men, but we do have to confess them to God. Right? You say, well, God knows my heart. God knows my thoughts. Yeah, but for some reason he said confess your sins to him, didn't he? He wants you and I to go through that exercise of admitting it. Man, I'm, I'm telling you. Now, maybe I'm a little bit cynical. I, I, I had a talk with a fellow West Virginian this morning in Sunday school about how that's bred into us sometimes up in the mountains. We're a little cynical. I'm afraid that there are some Christians it would break their jaw to confess that they had done something wrong. They cannot accept that reality. It is always deflecting. Well, you know, I didn't do what so-and-so did. Well, you know, I mean, if I was like sister so-and-so, I sure would be confessing, but I'm glad I'm not like her. Stop blaming others for your sins and your failures. Just stop. Just stop looking around when you're convicted or when you've done something wrong. Stop looking for somebody else to be the cause because it will draw you further away from God. Just take responsibility for your own actions. You don't have to stand up in front of the church. Uh, I, I think you guys have been here long enough. We don't do that. We don't, we don't have people come up and stand in front of the church and confess to everybody that they've done something wrong. Heavens, we wouldn't have time for anything else if that's what we did. <laughs> But we do need to get in our prayer closet and confess it to God, don't we? We need to take personal responsibility and own it because that's the only way that we're going to keep it from drawing us away from God and the only way to get nearer to God. Third, we find the rebellion of personal autonomy, verses 22 and 23. Saul's third critical error is identified there in verses 22 and 23 when, when Samuel says, hey, look, rebellion is as witchcraft and, and stubbornness as iniquity and idolatry. It is the rebellion of personal autonomy. That is, Saul acted independently of God. 
That's what he did right here. He acted independently of God. Well, I know what God wants, but I'm a king around here, and I got a better plan. Let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to offer a sacrifice to God. I got a better plan he's got. I'm going to make my soldiers a little happy, let them take some of the spoils of war. I'm going to come back, and I'm going to be more popular than ever. Saul rebelled against God's will and chose to be his own boss. Personal autonomy. You and I must be careful because not only is rebellion in our nature, it is there. That is what the flesh does. That's all that the flesh wants to do. It is in our nature, but it has also been heroicized in our American culture. Can I just make a broad sweep observation for you? Just just hear me out. From the rebellion of the Revolutionary War to the rebellion of rock and roll music, the rebel is often celebrated in our American culture. Isn't it? I mean, that's what we were founded on. We had the tea party. We rebelled against those Brits. I mean, we weren't going to live under that oppression. If it wasn't for those revolutionary rebels, we wouldn't be the country we are today. And my, oh my, Elvis Presley, man, he shook it up, didn't he? He brought in this rebellious music that was different than anything that was going on. And back then, the moms and dads didn't like it, and the teenage girls were passing out. And I had a man in my church in Colorado who loved Elvis Presley, and he was old enough that he was an older teenager, early 20s, when Elvis was coming up. And Elvis was coming to Denver, and so him and his girlfriend and his sister were going to go see Elvis. And he said he, were, he got in the front row. He got them in. It was a packed auditorium. And he said when Elvis walked in, his sister passed out, and she didn't wake up until he left the stage. <laughs> she was front row concert for Elvis, and she missed it because she passed out. Now, look. Some things should be rebelled against, right? I mean, some things should be rebelled against. The oppression of the British government on the colonies, I believe, was a legitimate rebellion. I'm not saying that that was wrong. But we should never rebel against God. We shouldn't get caught up in this mentality where we think it's the rebel who is always right and we bring that into our spiritual life and we have this rebellious spirit against God. You see, rebellion is one of the greatest offenses against God. I mean, it offends God when we rebel against Him. Did you notice the divine equation now the good news is it doesn't involve any numbers but here's the equation rebellion equals witchcraft that's a divine equation the second part of that divine equation stubbornness equals idolatry I know that you would never intentionally practice witchcraft I know that you would never craft an idol and bow down and worship it, but God says that rebellion and stubbornness is the same thing. That when we rebel against God, it is like witchcraft. And when we are so stubborn and strong-headed that we won't be told by God, 
It is the same as idolatry. We set ourselves up as a God. You and I must keep our rebellious hearts in check because our flesh is always trying to rebel against God. That is the conflict of the spirit and the flesh. It is that the flesh wants to rebel against God. It wants to live independently of God. And that's why we must be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's why we must mortify the deeds of the flesh. That's why we must be spirit-controlled so that we don't live in rebellion against God. Listen, mark this down. Rebellion is the religion founded by Satan. Rebellion is the religion founded by Satan. And I would say it's the biggest religion in the world. Fourth and final, we find the rejection of personal authority in verses 24 through 26. The final indictment against Saul is that he rejected the word of God. Did you see it there at the end of verse 23? Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord. You see it again at the end of verse 26. For thou hast rejected the word of the Lord. Now notice that it is not that Saul didn't believe that it was the word of God. That's not what's happening here. Saul knows that Samuel is a prophet. Saul knows that Samuel brings words from God. Saul knows the integrity of Samuel and that Samuel doesn't say anything that God didn't say. So when it says Saul rejected the word of God, it is not that he says, I don't believe that that is the word of God, but that he didn't obey it. As the word of God. That's where the rejection comes in. He knew that it was a word from God through Samuel. He just didn't obey it as if God had said it. In other words, Saul rejected the authority of the word of God on his life. Can I tell you, there is a battle going on over the authority of of the Word of God. Sadly, Christians do the same thing that Saul did. They believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Oh, I believe it. I believe every word of that Bible. I believe that's the only way to get saved is to believe in Jesus. I believe that God created the heaven and the earth. They believe it. They just don't obey it. Isn't that the problem? Let's make some contact today, right? Let's create a little bit of friction here. Let's make some contact with him. Because I'm not sure you're convinced. If you are like me, you've got this mechanism in your heart that says, yeah, I know other people do that, but I don't think I do that. I mean, I believe the word of God, and it's authoritative in my life. I'm going to do what the Bible says. But let me ask you, do we recognize or reject God's authority when it comes to what we say? Now, hold on. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying that may minister grace to the hearer. Do you obey that? Do you recognize the authority of God over what you say? Or do sometimes you say something that does not minister grace? That's what we're talking about here. It's the authority of the Word of God. How about what we look at? The psalmist said in Psalm 101, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. 
In this age where we have this unending stream of media that comes to us through our devices, it is so easy to allow wicked things to come before our eyes. Whether it's a TV show, an image, or whatever it may be. How about this? Do we recognize the authority of God's word about what we drink? It says, be not drunk with wine. Or do we make excuses and say, well, I can drink a little, or I can do this, I can do that. Hold on a minute. Are we recognizing or rejecting the authority of God? I said we were going to make contact, right? So don't, if I haven't gotten to you yet, don't worry, I'm coming. <laughs> we, we sweep in the corners and everything this morning. How about how we identify gender? Genesis 1.27 says that God created them in his image, male and female. Period. There's only two. And God made them recognizable from a distance. (laughs) And if you're still not sure about that, then you can check the blood. And there is something called DNA that identifies the markers internally. But do you and I begin to accept that there are different genders and that gender is a choice, that gender is not assigned biologically, but that it is an identification? Do we recognize the authority of God's word on this or do we reject the authority of God's word? How about marriage and sex? Hebrews 13, 4, marriage is honorable and all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. And yet we live in a day and time when there's more cohabitation than there has ever been. And the numbers are nearly identical between the people in the church and the people outside the church. So are we recognizing God's authority of his word or are we rejecting it? How about the sanctity of life? And if he, Exodus chapter 21, when God said, I, a life for a life, he, he was saying in a reference to a woman who loses her baby that was in the womb because of, an, because of a struggle. And so God is clearly identifying that life begins at conception. Life begins in the womb. But have we come to the place where we say, well, it's okay to, have a, to terminate a pregnancy under certain circumstances? You understand that that argument got us to the point where we are, that if it's right to terminate a pregnancy for this reason, then we get to the point where it's right to uh, terminate that pregnancy for no reason? Where's our authority, folks? Let me tell you something. The U.S. Constitution is not my authority. The, the, the legislature is not my supreme authority. The laws of the land are not my supreme authority. While I recognize the authority that they have, there is a higher authority that comes from heaven. And if the laws of the land do not correspond with the higher authority, I'm going to go or try to go with the authority of God's word. Don't want to leave anybody out. How about church attendance? I know, you're the ones that's here. This is for the people on Facebook. <laughs> Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but so much more as we see the day approaching. Is it in the Bible or is it not in the Bible? It's in the Bible. It's authoritative. God created the church to gather and I understand that there are some things that prevent us from gathering at times and that there are some times when we can't gather. I'm not speaking in a legalistic matter that you've got to be here every time the doors are open for you to be a Christian or be a good Christian. Uh, but I am saying that God has authoritatively said that the church is supposed to gather. And if we don't recognize that, then we don't recognize God's authority of his word 
Here's another one. How about tithing and giving? 1 Corinthians 16.2 says to lay up uh, beside of us on the first day of the week as God has prospered us so that there be no collecting when Paul came. Uh, the Bible teaches us from the very beginning to the very end that you and I are supposed to be givers and that we're to contribute to the work of God. But oftentimes that's the last thing that comes into our budgetary mind when we're going through the bills. And well, if I have enough, I will give some. Hold on a minute. Uh, that is rejecting the authority of God's word. The Bible says give the first fruits and trust God to supply the rest. And so if we're going to recognize the authority of God, we're going to be givers. How about loving one another? A new command I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Love you one another. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love one for another. And I'm telling you, some of the most hostile people in the world against each other are Christians. You know what that is? That's a rejection of the authority of God's word. I'm not going to love that person. They don't love me. Well, I didn't find that clause in John 13. How about forgiving one another? Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Ephesians 4.32. Do, 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 do. That's how I memorized it. I don't think that's in the Greek. How are we at forgiving people? Right? Well, I love people as long as they don't cross me, but you do me wrong, and that's it. I'm cutting you off. I'm not going to forgive you. That, that is rejecting the authority of God's word. Oh, we're not done yet. If you're still comfortable, hold on. What about reading your Bible? Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Joshua 1, 8, let not this word depart out of your mouth, but meditate thereon day and night. Then shalt thou have good success. Hey, we're supposed to be people of the book. We're supposed to read it. I know that it's not always easy reading, but it is always beneficial reading. It is the Word of God. And you and I are supposed to read His Word, study His Word, feed on His Word. How's your Bible reading going? If it's non-existent, then you have rejected the authority of God's Word on this matter. Praying. Men ought always to pray and not to faint, Luke 18.1. Pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5.17. And yet some of us have a hard time carving out five minutes of prayer in our daily life. That's a rejection of the authority of God's word. Witnessing, Jesus says, all authority is given unto me. Go you therefore and teach all nations. He said in Mark 16, go ye in the world and preach the gospel to every creature. How are we doing all witnessing? Or is that something that we've opted out of? Well, that's not for me. Well, that's for the preacher. That's for the deacons. That's for those people who have been to seminary. No, God gave that command to every disciple. It is the authority of God's word that you and I are supposed to be witnesses in this world. It's way too easy to condemn it in the life of Saul and condone it in my own life is what I found. Because I can read 1 Samuel 15, and I say, what was that dude doing? I mean, come on. God said, wipe him out. Go wipe him out. Don't save Agag. Don't, don't bring back the sheep and the oxen. you you, you got to just you obey God. And it's so easy for me to look at him and say, he didn't do it. But then when I turn the mirror on myself, I have all these blind spots. And I'm doing the exact same thing that he's doing. I'm rejecting the authority of God's word on my life. Because I'm not following or living out his commands. So if we're serious about drawing near to God and draw, not being drawn away, we need to do some personal assessment. What, what would have helped Saul? Personal assessment. 
If that guy would have stopped and taken some inventory of his life and recognized that he had this pride that was rising up in him, that he'd gotten into this habit of shifting blame to other people, where he had gotten into this, this routine in his life where he wanted to be his own boss, he wanted to live independently of God, and where he wasn't taking God's word that serious anymore, if he would have assessed himself and checked those things, it would have been an entirely different story. Because you know what happened to Saul? He lost the throne and his lineage lost the right to rule. Do you know that's why David gets anointed to be the king? And that's why David's generations follow after him? And that's why the Messiah came through the line of David? Was because Saul drew away from God, and he forfeited the future blessings that God wanted to send on his life. So check your pride. Check your sense of responsibility. Check your autonomy. Check your authority, because they are indicators of your nearness or farness from God. Those will indicate whether you're near to God or whether you are far from God. Would you bow with me? We bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment. I understand that this is one of those messages that you need to take and process. You need to meditate on it, mull it over, think about it. I'll, I hope that you do. But if God got your attention in these last 30 minutes, and he's brought something into your mind that you're convicted about, now is the time to deal with it. Don't put it off. Right here, right now, whatever it may be, do business with God. Perhaps you need to confess something to him. Maybe you recognize that you've been living independently. Oh, you haven't turned into an atheist. You haven't turned your back on God, but you've been running your own life, and you haven't been letting God run it. Today's the day. Today's the day to surrender all of that to him and to let God send even more blessings into your life. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the way that it confronts us and that it convicts us. I thank you, Lord, that this story of Saul is recorded for us today so that we can avoid these critical errors by seeing them highlighted in his life. Lord, I know that pride is a problem for me and for every human being that we do have this reluctance to take personal responsibility and we want to live autonomously. Lord, I just pray and ask that you would uh, cause your Holy Spirit to search our lives and to convict us of those areas and may we be pliable, compliant. And Lord, may we look at your word and not try to justify what we are doing, but may we go to your word and look for something that we can obey. How about we go to your word this week in our personal Bible reading and prayer time looking for an area in which we can obey what you have said and begin our journey of drawing near to you by applying your word authoritatively to our daily lives. God, help us to live faithful to you in this dark hour, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.